Welcome back to the South Harbor Church Podcast. South Harbor is a part of the Harbor Churches, which exist to help people find their way back to God. This week, Pastor Tim begins the last mini-series in our long study of the book of Genesis. As always, for more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, stick around after the message. And now, let's head over to Pastor Tim. Sorry, 41. We took a one-week pause in our Genesis series last week to talk through baptism and, uh, and all of the details around baptism. And we're now back in our Joseph saga, and we've been, we're, wrapped, we're in like the home stretch of Genesis. We've been in here since January, so we're in the home stretch of, of Genesis, and we've got a lot riding on these last nine chapters of Genesis. There is a um, tremendous amount, namely the question that the next nine chapters has to answer and has to resolve is, um, God has to somehow in the next nine chapters, he's taken this group of people, he's hand-selected this family to be the conduit of his good news and his blessing to the world. And uh, this family has become the Israelite nation, or these are the, the people who will become the tribes of Israel as the Bible progresses. Um, but will they find a way, this is the question, will they find a way to set aside their family differences, their fights? Uh, will they find a way to do that so that they can be the conduits of God's blessing to the world? Um, will they decide, will they choose to partner with God and put his story as the chief story, or will they continue to, um, what so many generations before them did, uh, put their own story as the kind of center motif, and how do they advance their story? Now, with that said, uh, let me just be really honest before we dive in. Um, this is one of those messages that is deliberately, and I say deliberately because it's deliberately heady. Okay, so... Um, we're going to think about a lot of things. I'm going to take you deep in the weeds. Uh, I know some people, they're like, that's great. Most of you, though, are like, oh, no. Um, I'm going to take you deep in the weeds. Uh, some sermons are aimed at the heart, and uh, we're really wrestling with uh, some of the hard stuff in our own lives and what do the scriptures say about the very personal things in our lives. Some sermons are geared more at the head and trying to think through how we think. Uh, this is one of those. So if I, um, if I bore you this morning... I at least warned you, um, okay, I apologize. Uh, I'll try not to, but uh, um, when I, let me say something else. When I sit down to write a sermon, I'm often asking myself, sometimes on the back end of a sermon, I'm looking at the message and saying, okay, who is this for? Because I want to, I, I, I like to spend some time in prayer for, okay, I think if we're talking about this subject, uh, this, this person or this group of people, like this is gonna, this is, God might speak through this. Okay, so I, I want to be thinking about who's this sermon for? And I sat with this this weekend and was looking at the sermon, like, who is this for, um, this particular message? And uh, I think this sermon is for me 20 years ago. Um, uh, 20 years ago, uh, I, I grew up and was handed a faith system that was very simplistic, very black and white, right and wrong, good and bad. And, um, and it, was, it, was, it was gifted to me by uh, my faith community, my parents. I, I got this really kind of black and white faith system and then I went off to college, and uh, I remember reading a book, and uh, this particular book rocked me and introduced some concepts and themes to me that I just hadn't bumped into before. And, uh, and when I dove into those themes a little deeper, I realized that some of them were true, or at least felt true, and, uh, and it seemed to add up. And I remember, like, okay, I was handed this black and white faith, and now all of a sudden I've got, like, okay, I got this nuance and these other ideas, and what do I do with it? And I went through a relatively difficult faith crisis because 
Uh, I somehow inherited, I don't know that it was intentional, but I inherited that you don't ask those questions, you don't think like that, um, you think like this. And uh, those questions are out of line, they're inappropriate. Uh, They show a lack of faith was what I was, uh, I kind of felt like, oh no, I'm off the path of faith. What I didn't realize is that actually that is the path of faith. (laughs) Asking those questions, wrestling with that stuff, it is the path of faith. Um, It's actually the path Christ calls us to go on. And so uh, 20 years ago, I wish I would have heard someone tell me that. And I wish I would have had somebody say to me, um, like, it's really important that we think as Christians and wrestle as Christians. We come from the nation of Israel, after all. Israel means to wrestle with God. And so, uh, so with that, um, let me give you a quick review of where we've been. Actually, be a little bit longer review because we had a week off. And so we got to wrap the nine, last nine weeks up. So let me give you a, a review of Genesis in like seven minutes. Um, here's where we've been. Genesis 1 and 2, we began in January. It begins in the beginning. What we read is that Genesis, in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates a uh, good world, and he puts humanity in charge of his good world. Now, just to note, in a recap, God creates a good world, that's the word the Bible uses, not a perfect world. We often will talk about how in the Garden of Eden it was perfect, everything was perfect, um, but perfect is static. Perfect can't get more perfecter. Does that make sense? Uh, so God creates a good world, and then he says to humanity, okay, I want you to partner with me. I got work for you to do. You're going to arrange and name the animals. You're going to care for the creation. You're going to partner with me and take this good world and make it even better. That was the mandate to the first humans. God had tasked humanity All humanity, it seems, God has tasked to care for the creation, to take the creation somewhere. And uh, then you get to chapters three and four, and you realize in the first first Adam and Eve, and then Cain and Abel, uh, we fail. We put ourselves at the center of our theology, and not God at the center of our theology. Um, That goes way back. And that's Adam and Eve, and then that's Cain and Abel, and then uh, there's several generations, and you find it again with Noah. And God says to Noah, okay, Noah, All people, I want you to care for it all. We're going to kind of start over, and uh, I want you to care for all of it. Take it somewhere. Like, go somewhere with this creation. And uh, and then Noah fails. He puts himself at the center of his theology, and it all falls apart once again. And then in Genesis chapter 12, we are introduced to a man named Abram, later Abraham. And God sees Abraham, and God says, okay, I'm going to partner. I'm going to change the, the plan a little bit. I am going to choose you. And partner with you, and you and your kids will be the ones tasked to bless the whole world. You're going to be chosen not out of privilege, not because I just like you better, but you're chosen, uh, you're chosen with a mission. Your mission is to go and make sure that all people everywhere uh, are blessed by me, that they know that they're blessed by me. That's the mission of the Israelite nation, Abraham's family. Um, will become the nation of Israel. That's Genesis chapter 12. Uh, and then we get to, uh, by the way, the, the promise in Genesis chapter 12, this is pretty, pretty key, is threefold. Um, God says to Abraham, okay, you're going to bless everyone. Here's what I'll, how, how I'll bless you. I will give you land. In the Bible, it's known as the promised land. Uh, we call it today the land of Israel. Um, I'm going to give you that land. I will give you children. Your kids will become the nation, the great nation of Israel. So I'll give you land, I'll give you children, and then third, I'll give you influence. 
Um, Through you, all nations will be blessed. That's Genesis chapter 12. Uh, Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has a son named Joseph. Joseph, in chapter 41, which is what we looked at two weeks ago, um, Joseph climbs the ranks uh, to become the right-hand man of the the most powerful man in the world at this time, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He's able to interpret some dreams. He puts together this really smart um, strategy of storing for seven years the excess so that you can then, uh, like, when the world's in need, you, can, you have excess, you can give to them. That is Genesis 41. Now, here's the dilemma of Genesis 41. The, the dilemma is, okay, God says, I'm going to bless you in three ways. I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you children, and I'm going to give you influence. By the time we get to chapter 41, all three of those promises seem to be on the verge of collapse. Do they have land? Yes. But if they're in the wrong land, remember Joseph's brothers sell them off to Egypt in slavery. So they're in the wrong land, and the nation's going to come, the brothers are going to come to this land but it's the wrong land. It's not the promised land, the land of is- we call Israel. It's the land of Egypt. It's the land of empire. So yes, they have land, but they're in the wrong land. Uh, and God said, I'll give you land and I'll give you children. Do they have children? Are there children? Yes, but they're selling each other off in slavery and they're constantly fighting. And so yes, there are children, but the children are not getting along with each other. How can you be a blessing to everyone if you can't get along with each other, if you can't even bless each other? So there's land, there's children, and then do they have influence? Again, kind of, yes. Um, Joseph, we read, is second in command, but he's advancing Egypt's cause. It's Pharaoh's name who's becoming great, not the name of God. The blessing was so that you could bless the world so that they may find their way back to me, God says. Um, But the blessing now is going to Pharaoh. So you have these three promises, and by the time you get to chapter 41, All three of those promises seem to be on the verge of collapse. Somehow in the next nine chapters, God has got to get his people. He's got to get them back in the right land. He's got to get the family back together, and he's got to get them back on the mission of helping people find their way back to him. Those three in nine chapters is what we've got to resolve. Good recap? Feel caught up if you weren't with us? Okay, Uh, chapter 41, let's pick the story up there. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and he put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command and people shouted before him, make way. Thus, he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I'm Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephanath Paneah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Pause here. Do you feel the tension in the story? Joseph is part of God's family. You're supposed to be part of God's family. And here what we have is not only is Joseph in Egypt and living in Egypt and traveling through Egypt, Joseph is becoming Egyptian. It's a major red flag, major problem in our story. 
Uh, if you go back just a few verses from where we started, um, the, before Joseph will get brought to Pharaoh to interpret the dreams, we read that Joseph will shave his face and his head. So Joseph goes for the, the Mr. Clean look. Does that reference make sense? The, I don't know, the, um, the, the, the pit bull look. <laughs> no, pit bull's old too. Uh, the Jason Statham, Joe Rogan, The Rock. He goes for the rock look. That, that was the look of Egypt, the look of the pharaohs. If you've ever seen images of the pharaohs, uh, they're often shown as clean, like uh, freshly shaven head, freshly shaven face. This was the look of Egypt. Joseph, when he's going to go before the Egyptian royalty, he dresses like Egypt. He's beginning to look Egyptian. But not only does he begin to look Egyptian, he begins to dress Egyptian. We're told that Pharaoh gives him his signet ring, his family ring. He then puts a fine, fine, a robe of fine linen on him, and he puts a gold chain on his neck. Now, um, we're 41 chapters into Genesis. We've followed this family. Have we heard of any other of God's family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? Anyone else wearing fine, like jewelry and gold and necklaces? These are shepherds. They're not wearing uh, gold necklaces and golden rings. They're, they're shepherds. All of, but guess who does wear this kind of stuff? Royalty in Egypt. So he's beginning to look and dress Egyptian. And beyond that, he's, he's driving an Egyptian car. We call it a chariot um, in the Bible. Um, it's an Egyptian. It's a war vehicle of the Egyptians. He's driving. And as he drives the chariot, the people see him and are supposed to pronounce, make way which is what they say to Pharaoh when Pharaoh goes by. So he's beginning to look Egyptian. He's dressing Egyptian. He's driving an Egyptian vehicle, an Egyptian chariot. Um, he is beginning to become Egyptian. He's also given, by the way, an Egyptian name. Uh, Pharaoh says, okay, Joseph, um, Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. Joseph's the Hebrew name. You need, you need uh, an Egyptian name. So he names him Zephanath Paneah. Now, we don't know exactly what that phrase means. Um, biblical scholars and Egyptologists offer up a theory, but we're not confident in the theory, but here's their theory. They believe the name means the God speaks and he lives. Red flag, red flag. So Joseph makes way, he's dressed like an Egyptian, walks, walks talks, you know the song by the Bengals. Uh, he does... He's becoming Egyptian, and as he goes, they're calling him a living God. And beyond that, he's got an Egyptian wife, and his wife, uh, this Egyptian wife, is the daughter of a priest of an Egyptian god. We have a problem. And then he and his Egyptian wife, they have two boys, and they name their boys some Questionable names. Here's what they named their boys. Uh, this is verse 50. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, son of Potiphera, priest of An. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. So he has two boys. Boy number one, you're going to be called God made me forget my family and my past. Boy number two, 
you're going to be called, and God has blessed me in this new land of Egypt. See the problem? He's like cutting off his past. He's embracing it. And then in verse 57, we read, All the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. So the whole world is being blessed by Egypt. God said you're supposed to bless the world, but you're supposed to bless the world for my namesake, not for Egypt's namesake. And now Egypt is at the center of the story. Do you feel the tension in the story at this point? We have nine chapters to resolve all of this. Joseph is not only becoming Egyptian, um, he has been given power, political power. And he seems to be using his power not to advance God's purposes, but to advance um, Egypt's. Now, if that doesn't feel like attention, you and I live in and you and I swim in right here and right now. I don't know what is. Um, for uh, the last several weeks, we've been looking at the Joseph story through the personal lens. And this story is uh, very personal, and I hope you've seen that. Wow, that, that, uh, that's how I feel. I, I felt like I've been abandoned. I felt like I've been discarded. Um, there's a way to read the story very, through the personal lens, um, but there's also another way to read the Joseph story that, uh, well, throughout history, people have been reading it this way. And it's not through the personal lens. It's through the communal, or dare I say, the political lens. Um, to, to say it more clearly, the question that this, this text force, this particular segment of Joseph forces us to wrestle with is, what do we do with our power in the face of evil? What do we as a collective do with our power in the face of evil? Uh, especially when it's not clear what to do. And that's the thing. In the Joseph story, it's not clear what Joseph should do. Would you agree? It's not exactly clear. Um, should he do... What if, what if Joseph just says, you know what, Pharaoh? I'm not going to help you. You had a dream. I think I could help you with it. I'm not going to help you because I have to help God. I serve God and I serve God alone. I'm not going to help you. Let's role play this scenario. How does that end for Joseph? Probably gets killed, right? He probably gets killed. Um, at the very best, he gets thrown back into prison. What good is Joseph if he's in prison? Like maybe you say like, okay, if you do nothing, what, what good is it if he's in prison? He can't help anybody. In fact, his own family will suffer. Uh, his own family in the next chapter will be coming to Egypt because they're starving and they need Egypt to help them. So if Joseph does nothing in this moment, He's not just hurting the world. He's hurting his own people, his own family. They're starving. So he's got to do something, right? There's got to be a greater purpose to the suffering. He's got to do something. But that's dangerous, isn't it? It's dangerous. Um, because it can be a slippery slope, this whole, like, I got to do something. Uh, is, so, so let's play the other side. If he's got to do nothing... Um, isn't that ultimately, in fact, not helping? If you, if you do nothing, um, sure, he's helping the Egyptians. Um, he's helping them. But if he's helping the Egyptians, wouldn't it be better to do nothing because they're a ruthless empire? Isn't by helping the Egyptians, yes, it looks good for Joseph now, but if you know where the story's going, he's going to help this ruthless empire. And all it's going to take, according to the very first chapter of Exodus, is one new pharaoh who says, I don't remember Joseph. And all of these people who have found hope in Egypt are going to be put in chains and are going to become slaves. Just takes one Pharaoh to say, I mean, that's how Exodus begins. Just takes one Pharaoh to say, I, I don't know these people. 
So doing something seems like a bad option, but doing nothing seems like a bad option. So what do you do if you're Joseph? How do you use your power in the face of evil? Um, Would you agree that the Joseph story feels complicated? Feels complicated? Um, And is it the complicatedness? What has our whole country screaming at each other right now? Uh, we want simple. Like we want simple answers. We actually want someone who can come to us and say, okay, that problem that looks really complex, I, I can give you a really simple answer to how to deal with that problem. And then we hear the simple answer and we say, you gave me a simple answer. It's what I want. I want simple. We, we want simple, but have you ever found yourself reading up on an issue that felt simple? And then you read up on an issue and you realize, ooh, that issue is complex. <laughs> I'll give you one. Uh, think about Ukraine. Ukraine. What do we do? Right? Like people come along and they've got talking points, and it's like, okay, on the one side, um, if you stop funding Ukraine right now, you are just giving Ukraine over to Russia, and uh, Russia is going to take it. And where do they stop? When will they stop? Um, so we've got to continue to put a significant portion of our resources towards Ukraine, because otherwise, when's it going to stop? And then on the other side, you have this whole group of people who are saying, yeah, and it costs a lot of money. We're sinking a lot of money into Ukraine. If we keep sinking money into Ukraine, isn't that just another unwinnable war? And did we not just get out of one of those 20-year unwinnable wars in Afghanistan? So which is it? It's not simple. It's complicated, right? And you begin to realize uh, that talking points might be simple, but once you kind of dig in, it's really complicated, and you have intelligent people on both sides making intelligent... Intelligent... (laughs) I'm not one of them. Uh, Intelligent arguments on both sides. And you step back from the whole thing, and you realize uh, it's really complicated. Now, you may still have strong opinions on one side or the other, But you have to at least, when you hear both sides, come to the conclusion that uh, it is complicated. And those on the other side may not be just completely ignorant and dumb, and I can just snub my nose at them. I I may still vehemently disagree, but I actually have to acknowledge that they're thinking and thoughtful about their approach. That's just one issue. We're about to head into a political season all of the issues that divide our country are about to be back in our talking points. Uh, gun control, climate change, um, foreign disputes, all, all, of, all of the issues. We want simple. Um, we, we want someone who tells us this is a simple answer, but it's often really, really complicated. What do we, how do we do, or how do we use our power in the face of evil? How do we step into God's mission? How do we do it? Maybe you're thinking, this is why I'm really glad the Bible's super clear. (laughs) And then what you discover is you hear Christians, smart, God-loving, sincere Christians, and they stand on both edges of all of these issues, and they have talking points, and they have things that are, again, they love Jesus, they love the scriptures, they're part of the Christian family, and they disagree on some of these issues, and you hear them go back and forth, And uh, now the simple answer in that moment is to say, okay, it's complicated. I know how 
I know how I vote. I know how I think. I know the scholars I trust. I'll just ignore all the rest of them. Except then a, a part of you inside is like, yeah, but that does, that feels intellectually lazy. That lacks intellectual integrity. It lacks intellectual and spiritual honesty. Uh, I propose to you that the Bible offers a far better approach. And with the few minutes we have remaining, I want to try to show you it. This is the part where I got to take you deep in the weeds. I'm looking at the clock. I'll be as fast as I can by taking you in the weeds. Um, by the way, I owe a great debt to a rabbi named Ari Lam for helping me see what I get to show you. Um, but there are, I don't know if you are aware of this or that you care, but there are three other stories that will happen later in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that use the Joseph story as a reference point for how do they move forward. There are three other times, they all happen in the same time period, but three other stories in your Bible that all are asking the question, how do we use our power in the face of evil? And they point back to Joseph. Story number one. Uh, the, the first story that feels oddly reminiscent of Joseph is a story by a man, about a man named Daniel. Uh, Daniel, in that story, he, is, um, he has been exiled into Babylon, and he, uh, there's a king. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon, and this king has a troubling dream. We read this. So he commanded the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans he summoned to tell the king his dreams. Does this sound familiar? A, a king asking somebody who's in slavery their dreams. It sounds a whole lot like another story we know. The Joseph story. But what's really interesting in the Daniel story is that word magicians. Is the word in Hebrew, it's a borrowed word, chartamim. This borrowed word actually comes from, drumroll please, Egyptian. It's part of the Egyptian language. Now, why would Daniel, who's writing a thousand years after the Egyptians were at their height, who's in a nation that's not Egypt, use an Egyptian word? Perhaps because Daniel wants us, or the author of Daniel wants us to make the connection. You cannot read the Daniel story without understanding the backdrop of the Joseph story. Uh, and so we read in Genesis 41 that uh, he too, um, the, the Pharaoh in this story, the king of Egypt, sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. And again, the word for magicians is chartumim. Now in Genesis 41, using an Egyptian word makes sense. It's taking place in Egypt. But a thousand years later, it doesn't make as much sense unless you understand that the author of Daniel is trying to connect the stories. That's Daniel. We'll come back to Daniel. Second character that uses the Joseph story is a guy by the name of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim. That may be the first time you heard that word, Jehoiakim. Uh, Jehoiakim uh, is a, the, it actually tells a story of, if you read 2 Kings, uh, he's the second to last king of the nation of Judah that was exiled by that same Nebuchadnezzar fella. I know Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar. If you're new to church, I'm sorry. Big names. Um, but the book of 2 Kings ends with Jehoiakim's treatment in the Babylonian court. And we learn that eventually the king, and I'll quote 2 Kings 25, 27, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. 
Except for those words, graciously freed, are an odd coupling of words. Uh, in Hebrew, it's the phrase nasa et rosh, which literally means lift up the head. Now, the question you're maybe asking, I would be asking, is what does lifting up the head have to do with graciously freeing? Why would we translate it this way? And the answer is, technically, nothing. <laughs> Doesn't have to do with it. Uh, in fact, uh, typically, when this phrase is used, it's almost always to count or to count amongst the favored, like the favored group. There's only one other time in the Bible that it's used in reference to setting a group or setting someone free. And that particular reference Anyone want to guess which story? Joseph. Uh, Joseph. Uh, in the Joseph story, we read that Pharaoh lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer, and that's going to pave way for Joseph to interpret the dream. But the connections don't stop there. Uh, Jehoiakim is granted a throne. In Hebrew, it's, it's a kise over, in Hebrew, I, all of the other captive kings. Uh, it's an odd detail until you realize it's the exact language that takes place in the Joseph story. In that story, Joseph is given a throne, a kisei over I, all of Egypt. Uh, the connections continue. Jehoiakim and Joseph both change their clothes when they emerge from captivity. They both find favor and survive by the hands of a foreign king. I could go on and on, but you get the point? Okay, that's the second. Um, third. And I promise relevance is coming. Third, we have Daniel, hidden Joseph character. Jehoiakim, it's like a hidden Joseph character. The third, I said there's three. The third is a lady named Esther. Uh, in that particular story, there's a king. His name is Ahasuerus, and he's throwing a party. Notice the language that kicks off the book of, of Esther. In the third year, Shalosh, of his reign, he gave a feast, Asa Mishteh, for all his officials and servants, Abadav, which is the exact same, almost word for word, description that comes up in the Joseph story. On the third Shalosh day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast via As Mishtah for all his servants, Abadav. Same number three, both throwing a party, using identical Hebrew words, right from the jump. The author of Esther wants you to know that this is a Joseph story. Read the Joseph story. Jo uh, Esther is described as a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. In Hebrew, it's two phrases, yafat to'ar and mare, which is exactly how Joseph is described. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, yafat to'ar and mare. You following me? Let me give you a couple more, just overstate my point. Uh, the king's servants try to get uh, Mordecai, Esther's cousin and guardian, to bow down to the bad guy. Uh, in the story, his name is uh, Haman, and we read this. And when, Vayahi, they spoke to him day after day, yam yam, which is my favorite, he would not listen, valo shama, to them, which is nearly an identical quote to the Joseph story. When Potiphar's wife frames Joseph, we read, and as, Vayahi. She spoke to Joseph day after day. Yum, yum. Uh, he would not listen, Valo Shema, to her. Same exact words. Uh, it gets a little bit crazier. Um, remember how in uh, Jehoiakim's story and in Joseph's story, there's both have that detail about Kisei, the throne over all, I, all other kings? That exact same language is used in the book of Esther. Haman gets his throne, Kisei, above, i.e., all the other officials who were with him. Okay, I know a lot of details. Here's why I tell you them. Three stories all take place in history. 
All of them are using the Joseph story to try to give a reference point for how we are to move forward. Uh, All of them, and it makes sense why they would use the Joseph story. Why would they look at the Joseph story? They all take place about a thousand years after Joseph when the nation is in exile. Here's a story of a man in exile. He's got to feel what we're feeling. He's got to feel angry, disoriented, hurt. And, uh, and he's given a position where he may have some power. He's in a, a foreign land. He's homeless. This story feels a lot like our story. But what I find fascinating is that three stories all point to the Joseph story, all taking place in the same moment, and yet they all come away from the Joseph story with different approaches for how they should move forward. Jehoiakim's author reads the Joseph story, and, they, and Jehoiakim's author, 2 Kings, says, this is a warning. This is a warning. Don't. Don't serve Pharaoh. See, remember when Joseph served Pharaoh, how that all played out for Joseph. It just takes one king to come, one Pharaoh to come, and it all falls apart. Don't do it. Better to die in the dungeon, serving God and trusting God, than to serve the king, to, to, to serve anyone other than God. It's a warning. So Jehoiakim, you have the illusion of power, but it's just an illusion. You don't get real power. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be awful to you. It's a warning, they say. Joseph's our warning story. Now, if that was the only story that interacted with Joseph, we could look at the takeaway being any allegiance other than to God alone. Um, So allegiance to a nation, allegiance to a party, any allegiance other than to God alone is an aberration. Don't do it. This is a warning. Don't you dare. Case closed. But then along comes Esther. And Esther says, yeah, I've read the story too. I've read the story too. And you know what? You can't just live a quiet life and and die in suffering. You've got to do something if God gives you the opportunity. God gives you a voice, use your voice. God gives you power, use your power. Do something. And just like Joseph wore the clothes of Egypt, and Joseph spoke the part of Egypt, and Joseph used the tactics of Egypt and Pharaoh, so will Esther. She'll wear the clothes. She'll eat the food. She'll do the things. She acts, eats, looks like Babylon. And all of it because she is trying to save her people. So Esther reads the story. Jehoiakim says, it's a warning. Whatever you do, don't. Esther reads the same story and says, ah, I think you have to do something. Look at Joseph. He saved the nation. That's how God chose to save the nation. We have to do something. Two different, fundamentally, who's right? Then along comes a third guy, Daniel. And Daniel's particular story is the ultimate parallel to the Joseph story. They're both captives in a foreign land. They both are dream interpreters. They both look, speak, and dress, and most importantly, worship distinctly. Um, Both rise to power in a royal court. But Daniel goes out of his way to emphasize the differences. Daniel still prays the daily prayers. Joseph doesn't ever get mentioned as praying the prayers. Daniel refuses to to wear the king's clothes or eat the king's food. Joseph puts them on easily, does it all. Joseph helped Egypt's prosperity. Daniel predicted Babylon's doom. Very different. And so the author, Jehoiakim, says, it's a warning. Joseph is a warning. 
we should just accept our struggles and live quiet lives and keep our faith. Esther says, well, you gotta do something. You gotta fight power, even if it means doing their game. You do the game. And then along comes Daniel, and Daniel says, you gotta live radically countercultural. Speak the hard words. So how do we use our power in the face of evil? Do we take the passive route of Jehoiakim, the politically aggressive route of Esther, or the countercultural route of Daniel? Which one of them is right? Of course, they all are. They all are. Um, contrary to how many Christians read our Bibles, we want simple verses, simple answers to complicated questions. The Bible itself is getting us to do something that's far harder to do, to think, to seek wisdom, to discern. And it holds three stories side by side, and it doesn't give us a clear answer because different scenarios call for different responses. It's not so easy to say, well, which one is right and which one is wrong? Um, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? All of them, Jehoiakim, Esther, Daniel, all of them are very sincere followers of God. All of them are trying to be faithful readers of the biblical text. All of them are seeing the biblical story of Joseph as living words that didn't just happen back then, but are meant to be interpreted for our day, to walk faithfully with God in our day. And all of them come to three totally different conclusions of what it means to walk faithfully with God. And the Bible includes all of them. One of the things I love about the biblical text is it does this all the time. It includes conversation partners. The Bible is not, first and foremost, an answer book. It is, first and foremost, a guidebook. It is less interested in telling us what to think, and it's more interested in teaching us how to think. Uh, it doesn't rush to resolve tension. It understands that our world is complicated. It was then, and it is now. And the problems we face as people are complicated. And just to say, well, the Bible is really clear, and here's my quote, sometimes that may be true, but a lot of times it's really complicated. What do we do in Ukraine? That's very complicated. And just to say, well, that person's dumb, and this side is dumb, and we're the smart, is actually spiritually dishonest with the biblical text that we have. Uh, I just watched the movie Oppenheimer recently. Have you seen this movie? Really interesting movie, um, if you like three hours of talking, which I do. Um, but it's a, it's a great movie. But that's the question at the center of the movie is, do we kill thousands of people in order to save tens of thousands of people? This is the moral dilemma in the movie. And what you have in the biblical text is you have these conversation partners. What's the right answer? What's the right approach? How do you walk most faithfully? The answer is it's complicated. Now to get really practical, um, if we just villainize people we don't agree with, especially when those people are fellow Jesus followers, if we don't hear them, listen to them, intellectually wrestle with them, doesn't mean we don't have our own strong opinions and shouldn't voice those as well. But if we don't do that, we're actually not being faithful to the biblical witness because the Bible does this all the time. We're heading into another election season. And it's um, the challenge I've been trying to live into personally is... Uh, it's really easy. I can have strong opinions, and it's really easy for me just to look at somebody else and say, yeah, they're just wrong or ignorant or dumb. Um, and, and maybe they're ignorant. I don't know. But, but most of the time, I've been trying to disposition myself in, in thinking, okay, uh, 
they see the world through a different set of eyes than I do. And maybe, maybe they actually are quite smart. I am going to assume, even if I disagree on the solution to the political problem, I am going to assume that they want to make the world a better place too. I am going to assume they're trying to be loving. Now let's have the disagreement. Let's have the conversation. Um, but the Bible comes in and uses this particular story as a way of saying this is really complicated. Sometimes it's really important as Christians that God teaches us how to think. Good enough. Let's have a prayer. Lord. Um, uh, in the next election season, Jesus, would you protect your church from uh, falling prey to uh, the sin of not loving our neighbor as ourself? Uh, Lord, would you help us to see within the persons we disagree with uh, that it, there is somebody in there that is trying their best also to make sense of really complicated scenarios and out of it, Lord, would you help us to grow in our empathy, our compassion, um, our ability to call strangers neighbors and neighbors friends and friends family. Uh, Lord, would you grow this within us? And uh, would your church model for our world that we can disagree with each other um, and yet we can stand united in your name, in your name alone? Uh, and so, Jesus, we love you and we pray this in your name. And everybody said, amen. We hope that this week's message has brought you both some challenge and some blessing. For more information about how you can become a part of the South Harbor Church community, find us on the web at www.southharbor.org or find us on Facebook and Instagram at South Harbor Church. And on Sunday mornings, you can find our service streamed live at 10 a.m. on our Facebook page. And so from all of us here at South Harbor and the Harbor Churches, we want to wish you a blessed week.